0: The book of Psalms is unlike any other book of scripture. Though it is the longest book in the Old Testament, it has the least amount of narrative content, meaning there are no characters we can attach to, no prophets whose teachings we can learn about and liken unto ourselves. It is as if some future civilization had discovered our hymnal and was reading it to learn about us. Nevertheless, there are a large number of lessons we can learn, uh, both about the gospel and about ancient Hebrew literary styles from studying the book of Psalms. So this is lesson number 25, Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Like to Mention our lead in music today. I couldn't resist using the song Chant a Psalm from Steel Pulse. In Jesus's day and in the Old Testament times as well, the Psalms were chanted daily by observant Jews. They would have either recited, or chanted, or sung the Psalms as hymns. And the book of Psalms is unique in, in, that, uh, in several ways, but we, when we think of the book of Psalms, we usually think that David wrote the Psalms. And it is true that uh, a little less than half of them are attributed to him. Uh, nevertheless, some of those that are attributed to David, we know he did not write. So we're not 100% sure how accurate those attributions are. Um, and it is theorized, or Talmudic traditions would tell us, that some of the Psalms were written by Adam or Melchizedek. And if the if those traditions are true, then not only are this, is the Book of Psalms the longest book in the in the Bible, but it also would be the longest uh, or the oldest have the oldest content and the newest content in the Old Testament. So um, it's we have to think of it as almost like a an anthology of poetry that has been compiled over the centuries of of Judaic life and because of that we don't have there's no there's no one thing that we're going to talk about there's no prophet that we will discuss to to learn lessons from i basically had to go through and choose which psalms which lessons which poetic styles that i wanted to focus on and this is this is kind of the the choice that you face in teaching this lesson is what part of it do you want to focus on it would be kind of like teaching a lesson on our hymnal what hymns are your favorites uh, and what lessons do do you learn from them and i the the approach that that appealed to me the most is to talk about how the psalms relate to the New Testament oddly enough and I guess that may be because of what I happen to be studying in my own personal life right now, but um whatever the reason you have to you 're listening to this you have to you have to follow along with what I want. this isn't your podcast. it's mine so uh my the part that I wanted to talk about was the the word blessed. so how does Jesus begin his ministry uh well obviously he he was baptized first, but one of the first lessons that Jesus taught was the sermon what we call the Sermon on the Mount or in Luke the Sermon on the plain and he starts with what are what we refer to as the Beatitudes, which are blessed. Are the meek blessed? Are the poor in spirit blessed? Are the merciful blessed? Are the peacemakers right? Christ talks about Christ talks to all these people who are coming out to follow him, and we'll we'll actually get into this a little bit more next time when we discuss Solomon, but um, Christ has a way of saying, "Blessed are blessed are ye" when this happens, and. Uh, one of the interesting things about Psalms is we can see that this wasn't... that Jesus was using a teaching style that was actually common in, in his time and would have been very familiar to those listening because uh, it's not only from the Psalms, but this is one of the places where we see it is quite, quite a few times in the book of Psalms, the word blessed is used. Blessed is he who... blank. And... So Jesus was taking a teaching style in order to expose his audience to new ideas. He was teaching he was taking a teaching style that was very old and that they would have it would have been beloved by them which was to hear that a certain co- course of action would lead to them being blessed. And uh so in in the book of Psalms Psalm number 1 starts out that way. Uh, I, I guess I could mention also, there are a few books in the scriptures, I can think of two right now actually, just the uh, Doctrine and Covenants and Psalms, where um, you don't have to talk about chapters. So you could say Psalms chapter 1, but usually you'd say Psalm number 1, and uh, which is similar to the way that we number our hymns. A lot of people say page number 123 when when they talk about hymn number 123, because some Some hymns go on more than one page, and some hymns have more than one hymn to the page. So it's actually not page number whatever, it's hymn number whatever. And that's the same with the Psalms. It's not chapter 33, it's Psalm 33, for example. So I don't know whether that matters or not, but it's just an interesting one more way in which the book of Psalms is unique. But Psalm 1, verse 1, uh, Blessed is he who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And I just wanted to point out that this is a, this is a teaching style that's used in the book of Psalms to encourage right choices among the Israelites. If you do this, then you'll be blessed. And Jesus kind of turned that teaching style on its head when he taught his Sermon on the Mount. And his Sermon on the Mount wasn't just one of his, you know, Jesus had a ministry of three years and... We picked a day in the life and happened to come upon the Sermon of the Mount. The Sermon of the Mount was very specifically chosen to be his main teaching, to say, uh, I'm, I'm bringing the kingdom of God unto you and explaining what the new covenant was going to look like and, and then exposing exactly what those teachings were. Well, how do we know that? That's because when Jesus went to the Nephites, It was among the first things that he taught was uh, what we call the Sermon at the Temple, which was very, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason I say all of that is the Book of Psalms is almost like a bridge between the Old Testament and the New. And if you haven't listened to every podcast up until now, then maybe uh, I know that I've covered this before, but uh, I'm going to cover it again briefly. The word Testament means covenant. And so the when we read the Old Testament, we're talking about the stories of the Israelites as they labor to serve God under the Old Covenant. And what is that? That is Moses receiving the 10 commandments and other commandments in Mount Sinai and in the wilderness of Sinai. And the Israelites struggling to follow those commandments. That is the Old Covenant. And everything before that happened, everything before the book of Exodus is just Moses' history of God's attempts. So the way the Jews see the Old Testament is God made several attempts to create a righteous people. First, by creating Adam and Eve in the garden, and they fell. Then uh, he he tried to bring the gospel among the children of Adam and Eve, and they were wicked, so he had to bring the flood. And this third his third attempt was through the covenant of Abraham, by creating a people that would be, and and as God puts it in the book of Exodus, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they were to be priests to show everyone else how to live under ethical monotheism, which which was a new idea at the time. Everyone were pagans and they were polytheists, and their gods were a lot like children. They had no accountability, but they had infinite power. And or not infinite, but uh, great power. And the, the idea of Israel was uh, our, our God is not controlled by us. We're not making these things up. He actually created every other God around us, and we are his emissaries to the world, and we expose to the world what it looks like to actually be a holy people. Now, they didn't do a very good job of it, but that was their covenant. So that is the story. The Old Testament is the story of how they lived under that covenant. What is the New Covenant? The New Testament is Jesus saying, in the Sermon on the Mount. So why do I bring up the Sermon on the Mount? That's because if the, if the Psalms are the bridge between the Old Testament and the New, then the Sermon on the Mount is the bridge from the New Testament to the Old. Because what Jesus says is, You have heard it said by those of olden time, Thou shalt not kill. But I say, thou shalt not be angry with thy brother. You have heard it said by those of olden time. And you remember talking about this last time in the in the lesson on lust with uh, David and Bathsheba. So Jesus wasn't saying, it is okay now to kill. I'm doing away with the Old Testament laws. What he said was, nothing in the Old Testament will be done away until every bit of it is, is fulfilled. And by by fulfilled, what he meant was, we're going to take these things to their natural conclusion. And you've been living a law of outward ordinances, which includes the priesthood ordinances that you, that you observe, by the way, which is the blood sacrifice. And that was meant to, that was meant to bring the Jews' minds forward to the time when their Messiah would be sacrificed. And that meaning was lost on many of them, and in time it was lost on all of them by jesus's time they'd they'd forgotten what that meant, but there was a time when they all knew and jesus was saying you you have heard it said that you have to go go this far, you have to go ten miles towards towards heaven, and I'm saying you've got to go a hundred miles towards heaven or you've got to go all the way and that was his way of fulfilling the law, and that was the new covenant and um let, if, you, if you have your scriptures, turn to Psalm 51. This was actually part of the lesson uh, of one of David's psalms. And as he was trying to repent, he, and he was saying, Lord, create in me a clean heart, right? What he wanted was God to change him. Unfortunately, he'd committed one of those sins, uh, not, not his adultery. He'd committed one of those sins for which repentance is sort of undefined. It may be that he can repent. Um, he, when he murdered Uriah, and when, as we discussed, he murdered other people as well. In trying to murder Uriah, he caused the death of others. Uh, but so, if he hadn't done that, then these—I'm sure these prayers would have would have had their effect on him, and he would have been able to be forgiven. So, this uh, Psalm fifty-one is sort of one of the. One of the most precious psalms of all, and he's saying, uh, in verse ten, "Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me." And you'll re- and you'll remember, number one, we covered this in the lesson on David, but we also covered this idea when we talked about Samuel. So you remember the story of Saul waiting for Samuel to show up, and he and he sacrificed, he made the blood sacrifice that only the priest should have been able to do, and and Saul had no authority to make that sacrifice. So we're in Psalm 51, verse 16. And David says, this is definitely a Psalm of David. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. So a couple of things here. Number one is, we're getting a little hint into the Hebrew literary style of parallelism we've talked about several times. And at its simplest form, it's just a, re- a repetition of a single idea. And we'll talk about the different forms of parallelism in a minute. Secondly, the first thing that, that David says is you don't want sacrifice. These outward, and this is what Christ would teach later, these outward observances, they're not what's important. What's important? The sacrifices of God are a broken, broken spirit. So, if David is actually repentant, that's when it matters. And this, it wasn't a new idea, in the old, in Old Testament times, because when when Christ, you'll recall in the New Testament, when Christ is asked, "What is the most, Master? What is the most important commandment in the law?" And what does Jesus say? Love the Lord thy God with all thy soul with all thy might might with all thy heart with all thy mind. And the second commandment is like unto it love thy neighbour as thyself. So those concepts are enshrined in the Torah, in the five books of Moses which were called by the Jews the law. But they they weren't they weren't given the emphasis that Jesus would later give them they weren't seen as the central idea which is what is in in your heart is what's most important because that wasn't how the old covenant worked you it was enough if you were to make these outward observances you were following the law now there were, that's not 100% true uh there were there were commandments like like the one i just mentioned love the lord thy god and but it wasn't there was no way for anyone to know if you were doing that and One of the Ten Commandments is not to covet. And that is something that happens wholly internally. And no one can know if you're keeping it or not. Nevertheless, it was commanded. So there was some internal focus, but it wasn't the emphasis of the Old Testament law. It wasn't the emphasis of the law of Moses. And David is saying, I've learned now through hard experience, I've now learned what is important, and it is what is in your heart. And that is what Jesus was teaching. He was saying, uh, you, you've you heard it said that you shouldn't kill, but I'm saying if you have anger in your heart, this this desire to kill, maybe you're acting it out in your mind. You're, you're thinking, oh, I'd really love to punch that guy in the face. Or maybe you're not acting out the adultery, but you're saying, man, I'd really love to commit sin with that person. Then that's where the sin matters. And you don't just find yourself in the middle of a sinful act. What you do is you make a series of choices that lead to it. And that's what Jesus was saying. All this stuff begins in the heart. Well, that wasn't the first time we'd heard that idea. David actually brings that idea to us in the book of Psalms, in the 51st Psalm. And and he's even saying, uh, you don't even want blood sacrifice. So he's not only saying blood sacrifice plus or my heart being in the right place. In Psalm fifty-one sixteen, thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. In other words, he can't wipe away his sin by taking extra animals to the temple. He's understanding that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And as we talk about the book of Psalms, we'll, we'll go a little bit into the story of David's later life. And we'll also do that uh, as we discuss Solomon next time but not a ton because not all of the psalms were written by David. Um I think I'll I'll share a story now as we as we think about the book of Psalms being the ancient Israel hymnal. Uh I'm I've been I'll just share a brief story about myself. I was in a singles ward years ago and we had a talent show and At the beginning of the talent show, they were giving away uh, awards. And one of the awards was for the loudest row in sacrament meeting. And nobody knew where this was going. Every award was a joke. But uh, one of the awards, the loudest row in sacrament meeting during him or singing the hymns in, in sacrament meeting. And so, you know, the nominees are, and they named several rows, the first row, the last row. And then the winner is, whatever row Brother Holt is sitting at, because (laughs) I was sort of well-known for singing the hymns at the top of my lungs, and I make no apology for that, but that is something that that, uh, people who know me, they know about me. And so maybe I'll, I'll spend a little bit of time talking about why that is, and I'll share a couple of scriptures about that. First, I'll tell a story. And when I was on my mission, a young missionary, The first few weeks of my mission in the MTC, every Tuesday night we had a large devotional. And they would, back then the the MTC was a little different than it is today. I don't know how familiar any of you might be with it, but they've done away with what used to be our uh, cafeteria slash basketball courts. And now those two things are separate, but there were several basketball courts together. And then when it came time for the devotional, they could fit about 3,000 missionaries in there. And we would put out all the chairs every Tuesday. And and uh, so um, picture a, a huge room with probably five or six basketball courts next to each other and filled with 3,000 missionaries. And they have all come to hear either a general authority or an apostle or somebody that was selected by the by the uh, presidency of the MTC, to come and once a week give us an inspiring thought or a talk. And this happened every Tuesday night. And I don't remember who this man was. Uh, He wasn't the person who was sent there. He wasn't the focus of the devotional. But before the devotional began, he stood in front of everyone. And he, he stood at the mic until everyone was quiet. People were sort of still chatting a little bit at the beginning of the meeting and then uh but we'd already had part of the meeting so it wasn't it wasn't right at the beginning we'd already had part of the meeting and people were a little fussy and a little loud and and he sat there until people were quiet and then he began to sing and he didn't have any accompaniment and he sang thy spirit lord hath stirred our souls he sang it just himself just into the quiet of the room, and, and within just a couple of notes, everyone stopped what they were doing and just paid attention. Every eye was glued to him. And this one man with his, just in a clear voice, and it wasn't a perfect voice. He was a good singer, but he wasn't a trained, he, he wasn't there to sing. He was there as one of the the entourage, let's say, of the visiting authority. And... He sang this song very sweetly, and then he finished, and he didn't say a word, and he sat down. And that has always stuck with me, because the spirit in the room, as soon as he was done, was just palpable. And ever since then, that's been my favorite hymn. But more than that, I think um, it nobody ever has to explain to me why the hymns have a power to move our spirits and to bring us closer to God. I already have seen it on many occasions, but that's one that comes to my mind first. You may be familiar with the scripture from Doctrine and Covenants 25. The song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. So think about every time you're singing, and this is another reason why I sing loud. When I was... uh, when I was a kid, there was a, a child in our, the family that moved into our ward, the Demkeys, and I don't know if the, maybe one day one of them will hear this podcast and, and uh, laugh, but uh, Nathan Demke was a, was a child, was a kid who was my age. They, his family moved into our ward, and this kid, we, we all tried to get away with not singing, you know, in primary. we they would sing, they would say, Okay, now we're gonna sing the song, and we'd learn the words so that we could mouth it, and it looked like we were singing. And he came in and he just sang for all he was worth. He you could hear him from anywhere in the chapel. And it didn't have an effect on me then, but I thought about it years later when I started to to love the hymns of the kingdom. And I I, I remembered this this young man, Nathan Dempke, who didn't care the that about the fact that no one around him was singing. None of the other uh 10 and 11-year-olds were singing at all. We were all trying to avoid singing. And he was singing with everything he had. And when I read and I always think about that whenever I read this verse, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me and shall be answered with a blessing on their heads. So his prayer was loud enough to reach heaven and mine wasn't. That's I can guarantee you that because I was trying not to pray. I was trying not to sing. Right? And and every time every song that we sing in church, if you read the words of it and and you think, okay, this this song is my prayer to heaven right now today. Well, there there is no song that you will sing in church that has words that you don't want to reach heaven. I guess that's where I'm trying to go with that. There, either the song is about praising God, and these are the different kinds of psalms as well. Either it's about praising God, or it's about gratitude, or it's about asking God for a blessing. But in none of those cases would you would you want to sing it quietly? If you, the whole point of the gospel in many of its manifestations and and this is true of temple worship, and those who have uh, been endowed will know what I'm talking about. The whole point is to try to get God to hear what you're saying. Well, God, will you please hear me? And um, one of the opportunities we have to make sure God hears us is when we sing hymns. God, In other words, God hears our hymns as a prayer. And so I was actually really proud that I, that I got that award, even though I hadn't done it for anyone else. I, was, I sing loud in church because I wanted God to hear me, not because I wanted man to hear me. And um, another scripture that, that comes into my mind, and this is something my mission president used to say a lot. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8. If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for the battle? And... Uh, Similar to the song of the righteous as a prayer, you know, we, if we want our prayer to reach God, if we want God to hear what we're saying, the words from our mouths, then why should we? Then we we can't just be mouthing the words. We have to sing those hymns at, at the top of our lungs. And um, similarly, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, is if if we're singing the hymns, if somebody were to come into our one of our worship services. And see everyone in there, kind of going, ah, you know, Lord, dismiss us with Thy blessing. That's just the first hymn that came to our, to my mind. Would they think, oh, these people really want God to dismiss them with His blessing, or would they think these people aren't really into this? They they're not feeling it. And if they if if somebody if an impartial observer would come into our one of our services and think these people aren't feeling it, how can we expect God to respond to that? hymn as if it were a prayer. Or if, let, let's put it another way, if it were a prayer, it would be one of those prayers where you're really tired, your mind isn't focused on the prayer, and you're just saying it as quickly as you can, and that, so that you can hop into bed and go to sleep. And that's never the way that I want my hymns to come to God. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I've had a tough time preparing for this lesson, because there's so much material, it's impossible to cover it all. And a lot of it is a repetition. So um, it's been really difficult for me to distill. um, Number one, it's also the summertime and been been having a lot of other activities and and moving around. But uh, it's also been really difficult for me to distill exactly what I would like to say about the book of Psalms. So here's my point to all of this. Every other book of scripture, every one, is some story or some wisdom written by man or delivered by God to a prophet and and delivered to man and obviously by man I mean mankind, men and women so it's, it's from either God or man to man but the Psalms are written by man and its purpose is to be delivered to God And so as we read the Psalms, we're not reading something that is for us. It's almost like we're a fly on the wall watching someone else pray to God, watching someone else's devotion. And that is a different experience than reading the story of Moses parting the Red Sea. As wonderful as that is, we don't know the thoughts of Moses' heart. We don't know his communication with God. And when we read the Psalms, we do know that. And in fact, one of the traditions is that Moses wrote one of the Psalms. Uh, And there are other Psalms, strictly speaking, that do not appear in the book of Psalms. Um, And the song of Moses is one of them. When When the Israelites, and you remember I made a big deal about this at the time, immediately after they crossed the Red Sea and the waters closed upon the Egyptians, the Israelites ascend you know, it's sort of they're climbing up from the, the water and, they, and they're climbing up away from the seashore and they they sing this song, whether one person wrote it and distributed copies somehow or taught it to everyone or whether God put it into their hearts to sing the same thing spontaneously, we don't know. But they were all singing this song and it was a song of praise. And this is the first place in the Bible when God is called a king, when Jehovah is a king, and that's a that's an idea that we will uh, explore more fully next year when we talk about the New Testament. But that is a that is very definitely a psalm. And Deuteronomy thirty-two, when when Moses gets to the end of his life and he's teaching his final lessons before he dies or before he he's going to be taken from the Israelites, then he teaches them. This song to sing, and it's a psalm. So there are other psalms that are not in the book of Psalms, and they could have been included here if they weren't already canonized, you might say. So, um I actually did a search for the word sorry, let's so that's that's kind of what I wanted to say about um Number one, what it means to sing and what it means to have the ancient Israelite hymnal in front of us. And number two, how another way in which the book of Psalms is is unique. Now I wanted to talk again about blessed. I did a search for the word blessed in the book of Psalms, and I didn't I didn't choose, you know, the the Lord will bless him who would or the Lord uh we bless the Lord. I only chose those occurrences where it said, Blessed is he who does this, blessed is he who does that. And I counted let's see I counted at least 10 maybe 11 of them where uh where this occurs and Jesus has 9 of them in the in the sermon on the mount and I could list them but I I decide I I I don't think I'm going to do that but you can do that in your gospel library app if you have that app installed on your phone or on your tablet um and you could just look at the different ones. One of them is, you know, Blessed is he who considereth the poor. Blessed in he who putteth, the Lord, putteth in the Lord his trust. Blessed is he that feareth the Lord. And that appears a couple of times. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of Jehovah. Blessed is he that trusteth in the Lord. And the these are these are behaviors these are people who most mostly it's just if you believe in God and you put your trust in Jehovah and you believe that Jehovah is the God above the other gods the the whole point of God's teaching in the entire Old Testament the history of Israel is go into the land of Israel inhabit it and do not get involved in the idolatries that are going to surround you and a lot of these blessed statements are blessed is he who doesn't do that. That's what they boil down to. What is another, something else that's unique about the book of Psalms? And I wouldn't say unique strictly, but um, let's say that it stands out. Um, there are a number, quite a number of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, but a, a large number of these come from the book of Psalms. So, um, I, and the one that sticks out to me the most in that, in that category is Psalm number 22. So if you turn to Psalm 22, if you don't have that, if you're driving or whatever, um, I'll say them, but it it would also be profitable for you to turn there. The first verse of Psalm 22 is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now this teaches us one important lesson, which is not always when Jesus fulfilled a prophecy was it like, wow, how did that ancient prophet know? Uh, Sometimes it's quite obvious that Jesus was fulfilling something on purpose. So he was turning it into a prophecy by saying it. So Jesus, in other words, Jesus could have chosen on the cross, and you may remember that these are the words, these are among the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross before he died. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in the King James Version, the Hebrew of that is actually transliterated into Greek. And it says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And you can read those exact words in the, in the English of, uh, or I should say, yeah, in the in the English translation of the of the King James Bible, and it's very similar to the ancient Hebrew in Psalm 22, verse one. So Jesus knew that he was reading; he was quoting Scripture. Nevertheless, this is treated as a prophecy of the death of Jesus, and in other words, the uh, this is listed as a Psalm of David. And in other words, David must have looked forward in time and seen how Jesus would feel. Now, a Jew would say, well, no, David was just saying he felt forsaken by God. And of course, there's no way to prove one way or the other. It's, it just depends on what you believe, how what you think, the whether this was a prophecy of Christ or not. In verse 7, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing that he delighted in him. Now, um, and those who, of you are who are fans of Handel's Messiah will recognize these words. He trusted in God that he would deliver him. And that's, this is one of my favorite passages from that. But um, And verse 7 has its own part of the Messiah as well. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, "He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver him." So let Him deliver him. And these—this is exactly this is one of those prophecies of Jesus where Jesus didn't have anything to do with fulfilling it. He didn't choose to fulfill it. But this is what the the Sanhedrin basically were saying. They laughed him to scorn. They spit in his face, and they and they said, "He tr- oh, if he trusted in God." And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, oh well, if God. Let you know, let God now come down and save him from the cross. He said that God loved him, and the, it, it's almost exactly not word for word, but exa- it is exactly the idea that David is saying in psalm twenty two which is, "Oh, this man trusted in God, he, and God delighted in him, so if God delights in him so much, why doesn't he pull him off the cross? And these were the exact words of people crossing passing by who um, whose sympathies lay with the sanhedrin and those who were uh swallowed up in their pride. Now we're in verse 16 of Psalm 22. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. So uh again, Christ didn't choose to be crucified. Obviously he knew it was coming, but that's not the same thing. It was it were it was the Roman soldiers and the uh the Jews who were uh sort of manipulating the romans behind the scenes that chose to crucify him it was pilate jesus didn't choose the method of his death and so it wasn't him purposely in order to uh in order to fulfill some obscure verse in the book of psalms he didn't choose to be crucified that was chosen for him and uh and i have to be careful the way i phrase that i'm not saying that jesus was powerless what i'm saying is he could have he could have avoided it nevertheless it's not that he he chose to have other people commit sin and kill him. he chose to submit to it, and that's different but that that was foretold in psalm twenty two verse sixteen in verse eighteen, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture so not only did they did they uh did they divide his clothing among themselves, but they were also gambling for it and this is a this is a very specific image. And again, Jesus didn't say, oh, I, I bet you can't cast lots for my robe. You know, he didn't, he didn't manipulate anyone to fulfill that, that prophecy. They did that of their own choice. And this, this scripture was fulfilled before Jesus picked up his cross. The Roman soldiers, in fact, did this exact thing. Incidentally there's a place in uh there's a museum in Jerusalem where they have found s- scratchings or uh engravings on one of the stones and it's an ancient book it's an ancient game of chance and the the museum is called the Echi Homo Museum or Behold the Man which is, which were the infamous words of Pilate saying Behold the man who has called himself your king. In this museum is this ancient Roman game scrawled into the rock, and so it's survived all this time. And they they don't claim that this was the place where the soldiers actually gambled for Christ's uh, vesture, as it's called here in Psalms. Nevertheless, uh, you know, it might have been, and it would have been around that exact spot, um, very close very close to that spot was the Antonia Fortress, where Pilate presented Jesus and said those words, "Behold the man." So um, we have a lot, we have not only uh, scriptural evidence, but we have archaeological evidence that that Christ was, or that this was a common practice. Number one, and that Christ was probably this is probably an accurate depiction of how Christ would have been killed was to have these Roman soldiers treat him with contempt. So this Psalm 22 is one notable example, but there are probably a dozen or more Psalms that have specific application to the Savior's life. And that's pretty amazing. Uh, In the Book of Mormon, we learn that no prophet Jesus says this when he appears to the Nephites. No prophet has ever taught, except he has testified of me. And Jesus makes specific mention of Samuel and of Moses. But we are left to understand that all of the prophets, now we don't have, as the Book of Mormon says, the plain and precious things have been taken out of the Bible. We don't have those exact words. Some of them have been restored by the inspired revision of the of the Bible, um, especially Moses' prophecy of Jesus Christ. But we have Jesus' word in the Book of Mormon that all of these Old Testament prophets did prophesy of Christ. But if those things were taken out purposely, or even if they were taken out accidentally, they couldn't figure out they didn't know no one knew before christ was born that for example psalm 22 verse 18 applied to some future messiah they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture so no one would know to take that out if they were trying to remove evidence of that christ was the messiah let's say in the hundred years following christ's death and some some person transcribing the old testament was like i'm going to take this part out because it obviously could be interpreted as applying to jesus of nazareth and i don't believe that jesus of nazareth was the messiah and therefore i'm not going to let this survive um that would be a very human and a very understandable motivation for a copyist of that time um to have i'm not saying that it did happen and in fact um it can't have happened that way in every case, because we do have a Greek version. The The Hebrew text of the Old Testament, this is just a side note, the biggest, the let's say the oldest surviving manuscript that we have of the entire Old Testament is called the Masoretic Text, and that is dated to about 1100 A.D., but we have what is called the septuagint which is a greek translation made 300 years let's say or between 300 and 200 years before christ from the from the ancient hebrew into greek and that has survived so we have the greek version and they and they agree to a surprising amount uh, the the two translations or or the original or what we would call the copy of the original, which is the Masoretic text. It's still in Hebrew. And then this Greek translation, which was made 1,500 years earlier, they have a surprising amount of agreement, and they have some very instructive differences as well. So we can see the changes that have occurred to the to the underlying ideas over time. Um, and I say that because... Um, that would cast doubt on the idea that all these changes crept in after the life of Jesus. So that is one idea of how the plain and precious things would have been taken out of the Old Testament, but it's not a sufficient explanation to explain all of it. Another prophetic aspect of the Psalms. Um, this is this is referred to. You might you might remember that. Uh, Joseph Smith talked about, you, you might remember that Moroni quoted to Joseph Smith when, when Joseph Smith, four years after the first vision, he had this vision of Moroni, appeared to him three times in the night, and he quoted the book of Malachi. But what, we, but what he didn't give a whole lot of details in, in that account was that he gave him several other scriptures and said, the time for these is about to be fulfilled. And I wish I had time to go into more detail on this, but Joseph later gave an account of this to Oliver Cowdery, who recorded it, and he mentioned five Psalms by name. And you can, uh, I'll, I'll leave this to you for homework. You can you can research what those five Psalms are, but a lot of it, three of them at least, were about latter-day prophecies. And so the Psalms weren't just about Jesus, but they were also about um and, and what kind of Latter-day prophecies did the ancient Jews care about? They cared about prophecies that they would be restored to their lands, that they would have the God on their side, God would be among them. And in other words, the kind of prophecy that led them to believe that the Messiah was going to be a king of an earthly kingdom. And he was going to put to shame all, all enemies, and that is a a theme that we see repeated in the Psalms which is Lord, you know, hedge up the way of my enemies. And when I read the Psalms and I read my enemy um I mean I don't I think most people nowadays, most modern people, they don't they don't go through life thinking um you know, I I need God to hedge up the way of my enemies. And they're thinking of people around them like oh gosh i've got i've got to go to work today but the the guy in the next cubicle he's my enemy or or maybe i have my own business you know i'm a plumber and the guy this this plumber down the street he's my enemy because he's taken some customers away from me we kind of we kind of don't think that way anymore uh when we read scriptures we can think yeah these guys had real enemies they wanted to kill them or they wanted to um establish a rival kingdom or eventually they'd all go to war together that's what an enemy is and you and i may not have actual enemies or we have people who we just can't get along with no matter how hard we tried so if somebody were to interpret that as an enemy so be it but you know christ christ's philosophies have had a huge influence on our culture and we um we actually don't like having enemies however there's one enemy that everyone has and and we don't think about this or, or perhaps perhaps you do, I don't know. But I think uh we don't think about this as often as we could, which is we have someone who really wants everything that's terrible that could possibly happen to us to happen. And that is the adversary Satan. Um I've I've reflected on this a little bit lately about how bad of an enemy Satan is. And there, not a lot of not a lot of people. I shouldn't say not a lot of people. Not everyone nowadays believes in pure evil. When they see a manifestation of evil in the world, what they're inquir- what they're uh, inclined to say is, "Oh, you know, he's a good person. He made a bad choice," and it's usually true. Every person, even Hitler. You know, even Hitler's Germany accomplished some good things. There is no evil that is pure in the world. However, um, and and I'm not saying that to excuse Hitler. Please don't misunderstand. Uh, What I'm saying is as evil as he was and as evil as Nazi Germany was, um, even that could have some good things said about it. And, And you would be totally honest in saying those good things. Now, does that good justify the terrible evil? Of course not. Of course not however it wasn't pure evil and we do have an and so when you think about what pure evil really is we do have an example of that and it's it's the fact that satan no matter how depraved and how terrible and how selfish and how sadistic you might a choice you might make satan would want you to make an even worse one there is no wrong thing that you could do that would make satan go wow whoa dude that was that was uncalled for that was that was off the that was out of bounds right satan would rejoice in this terrible choice you made and he would say you know what i've got some even worse you can do and it makes me happy that you are that you've come this far and it's gonna make me happier when you do some when you do the next thing that's even worse so think about all the terrible things you might read in the news that people do to each other. And Satan is at the Satan is not only at the bottom of it, but he is constantly inspiring people not only to do those things, but saying that's that's not as far down as we can go. We can get a lot worse and I want to. Why do I say all this? Because we can read the book of Psalms and we can we can remember that we have a real enemy somebody who not only not only wants what's worst for us but there are levels of what he would want for us that we can't even imagine that is such a true manifestation a true embodiment of what an enemy is and so when you read the book of psalms and you think oh you know I just don't have any enemies imagine that there are not only Satan, but the minions of Satan who would put evil thoughts in your head. They'll they'll be around you as much as you will allow them. They will have influence on you as often as you choose it, as often as you permit it. And therefore, it is totally appropriate for you and me to read this and think, hedge up the way of my enemy. Make a stumbling block for my enemy. And in spite of everything that David suffered and went through and all of the penalties that that came as a result of his poor choices these psalms actually worked for him and I think he was speaking not only you know his enemies at times were Saul the king or uh David later in his life he had to flee from his own son and he had to he there were he suffered intrigue the rest of his life. there were, He was constantly surrounded by enemies. That's because he had a powerful royal court, and also because he'd forfeited the greater protection from God that he would have had. Nevertheless, it seems like he truly did change his heart. Now, he had a very lamentable sin that was tough to repent of, but he changed his heart, and he changed his heart because of the prayers and because of the humility that he was able to summon. So, if you think of the kind of prayer that a sinner would offer that would really make a difference, this is where you'll find it. Now, uh, no discussion of Psalms would be complete without talking about the 23rd Psalm. And you've all heard it, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I wanted to talk a little bit about and so the next verse is he maketh me to lie down in green pastures he leadeth me beside the still waters and I wanted to talk a little bit about what this meant in the context of David's life I'll finish reading the psalm and then we'll then we'll discuss it just briefly he restoreth my soul he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, first of all, when he says the Lord is my shepherd, he the word that he actually used was Yahweh or Jehovah is my shepherd. And... Anytime you see this, the word Lord in small caps, the word they originally used was the name of God, not just the Lord. And I think that's important because they were differentiating the Lord from all the gods around that they could have been worshiping. Jehovah is my shepherd, I shall not want. Secondly, what does green pastures mean? David was a shepherd in Judea, and the... The town of Bethlehem is about six miles north of of present-day Jerusalem. It is, if you've ever been there or seen pictures, it is a rocky place. And a lot of times when Westerners read, the Lord is my shepherd, what they think of is some place that is covered in grass and water, and it's a, it's a grassy green meadow that's lush. When we think of green pastures, that's what we think of. That is not where David would have been. And in fact, if there was any place like that, if there was a, first of all, Jerusalem is sort of mountainous. It's not mountainous as, um, say, a Utah dweller would think of mountainous where huge mountains nearby, but it's constant hill slopes. So there are no flat lands where you would raise crops, for example. Or if you did, it would have to be terraced on a hillside. And if that kind of place existed the the farmers would have been at odds with shepherds at the very least to keep them out of their out of their fields they don't want farmers do not want sheep grazing on their crops that should just go without saying and therefore where david led his flocks would have been and it it might not have been um sheep alone, it might have been sheep and goats, and he would have led them around in areas where there were here a plant, there a plant, mostly brown rocks and sand. And the moisture that comes, the the rainfall is few and far between. And we've discussed the fact that for centuries, Baal was understood to be the sun god. And only recently, within our lifetimes, was have they uncovered evidence that Baal was actually a rain god. And that's one of the reasons it was so hard for Israelites to resist the worship of Baal was they needed rain. And so when they would go long enough without rain, it was irresistible for them to start worshiping Baal so that they could pray for rain. And the idea here is not that once you're led to the green pasture, so here's the, here's the main idea I'm, I'm going for. Once you're led to the green pasture, You do not have an infinite amount of food for the rest of your life. What you have is enough for just this moment. And that summons up, that idea summons up a lot of, a lot of lyrics from hymns that we sing today, like lead kindly light. I do not ask to see, and here's some, here's some words from lead kindly light that come to mind. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. So in other words, we're summoning this light, but we don't need the entire, entirety of our lives to be illuminated. I just need the next step illuminated. And that's really the lesson that God tried to teach the entire, through the entire Old Testament, which was, here you are in the wilderness, you get manna for one day only, maybe two before the Sabbath. Other than that, you have to trust in me every day. And this is an idea that is re-emphasized over and over in the scriptures, which is God doesn't God doesn't give you all the answers all at once. Line upon line, precept on precept. So he maketh me to lie down in green pastures is actually a restatement of that idea, which is he, he taketh me to these pastures that have just enough for me to get by today. And then he's going to bring me to the next one tomorrow so in verse 5 when the in of the 23rd psalm thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies you would not think that in the presence of your enemies is the place where you'd be comfortable to eat and nevertheless that's where god can make you comfortable and if you if you didn't realize this about the green pastures then these two ideas would seem to be different. But in fact, they're similar. You make me to lie down in green pastures, even though that wouldn't be a place I would normally lie down, I would think I've got to be constantly in search of of the next green pasture, because I just grazed this one out. We were here for 10 minutes, and all of the little shoots that are poking their, poking their first leaves out of the rocks have been eaten. And so... I wouldn't normally be comfortable here. I wouldn't normally be confident that I'm going to have a plentitude of nourishment. But God has given me that confidence. And I wouldn't normally eat in the presence of my enemies, but God has given me that confidence. So these these are are two statements of the same idea. So when you think God maketh me to lie down in green pastures, what the 23rd Psalm is saying is, God is looking out for me constantly as long as I'm willing to constantly trust in Him. He's never going to do it all at once. Um, let's finish off talking about... Oh, let, let me mention one more psalm, which is kind of fun. Psalm 119. Um, this is actually what we call in English an acrostic. And an acrostic in English is where well, in acrostic in any language, is where the first letter of the of each line forms a letter of a word. And if you were to write all the lines out without breaks, and then you would read the first letter along the left margin, and they would form a word or a sentence or some sort of message. And instead, in, in Psalm 119, each stanza begins with the succeeding letter of the Jewish alphabet. And the reason I mention it is because um, it is one form of poetry that does not survive translation. Obviously we have no idea what the original Hebrew letter was, let alone the or the Hebrew word was, let alone the letter that started it. But the Hebrew letters are there in Psalm 119, written in your scriptures. And so it's actually a an easy way where you can memorize the Hebrew alphabet. And I kind of think because it's there and easy enough to do. And sometimes when you're in church and you're not necessarily engaged in what's going on, you could do a lot worse than looking at Psalm 119 and memorizing the Hebrew alphabet. And, uh, if you look at the, at, like, for example, the, the second letter is bet and whatever, whatever sound starts the name of the letter, that's the sound that letter makes. So, um, you can know how to sound out words in Hebrew just by memorizing that alphabet. It's kind of fun. All right, final thing for us to discuss is um, to, to go over again the Hebrew poetic forms that do survive translation. And we've talked a lot about parallelism, but we haven't talked much about what kinds of parallelism there are. So sometimes parallelism takes the form of what's called synonymous parallelism, which is simply a restatement of the same idea using different words. And perhaps there's an intensification there. But there's also antithetic parallelism, which means first one idea, like, you know, God God will protect me, and then God will surely shake my enemies. So he's protecting me, shaking my enemies. It's parallelism because it, it's the things that God will do because of my obedience to him, for example, or because of my choosing him. But one of the, one, t- one side of the coin is what it'll do to me, the other side of the coin is what it'll do to my enemies. So that would be antithetical para- or antithetic parallelism. And uh, And you might see that, or you might see what's called synthetic parallelism, where each successive line of the of the parallels, adds more to the idea. So God will, surely God will look out for me, and you can even see it here in Psalm 23. Uh, Thou preparest a table before me, thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So these are, this is parallelism, and each line is more dramatic than the one before to the blessings that come from following God and believing in him. And finally, We've talked a little bit also about chiasmus, which is a form of parallelism, and it's called inverted parallelism. So, the, and I won't go into it in detail here, except to say that uh, it's not an imagination. A lot of people think, well, parallelism, you know, people might just, they might have done it unconsciously, and people might have made up this whole chiasmus thing in order to prove that, for example, the Book of Mormon was of ancient origin. Um, it's, I could understand why people would make that argument, but there are examples of chiasmus that are absolutely unmistakable. I'll point you towards a couple, and you can look at them and say, okay, yeah, that's true. This would never, ever happen haphazardly or by accident. Um so, one of the most dramatic examples is Psalm 58. Um, the entire psalm is one huge chiasmus, and I won't, I won't break it apart, but it has at least five or six elements to it, and so the, the beginning matches up with the end, and the second thing matches up with the second to the last thing, and you can kind of match up those concepts if you, if you look through that psalm. That's Psalm 58 and chiasmus also has a number of different types to it so sometimes the chiasmus is simple where one idea has one idea it matches up with at the bottom but there's one example from the book of mormon for example where one idea is is stated twice each idea in the first part is stated twice and then in the second half each idea is stated once in order and then again in order and so it has actually very complex forms of chiasmus and they're anything but random. They could not happen randomly. You can you can study them and see and when we in a couple of years when we discuss the Book of Mormon we'll go into those, but this one is this particular one in case you're curious is towards the end of Alma chapter 41. So, final thoughts on the Psalms. If you First of all about hymns in general songs if you want god to hear your prayers uh then if the tr- then remember if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound who shall prepare himself for the battle you want god to hear your prayers hear the words that come out of your mouth then let him hear your songs and maybe those songs and as the uh as the song says jesus listening can hear the songs you cannot sing sometimes you may not be capable of actually raising your physical voice. But remember that Jesus can hear the songs you cannot sing. And Christ himself was fond of quoting the Psalms. They were the source of what redemption was available to a terrible sinner, somebody who fell from grace, David, um, who was also a wonderful prophet of God. And so you can get a insight, an insight into what is going on in the thoughts of someone who's both a prophet and a sinner. Perhaps words of Moses, perhaps the words of Melchizedek, perhaps the words even of Adam, according to Talmudic tradition, quoted often by our Savior, and profound thoughts about the nature of God, praise of God, and gratitude all things that we can do with in our daily lives. So I'm very grateful for this opportunity to study and to teach. The book of Psalms, may God bless you as you teach them. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.